All right, folks. Um, good morning. Um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to make two different recordings. The first one's going to be on Act 1, Scene 4, and then the next one will be on Act 1, Scene 5. So make sure before you listen to this that you've read through both scenes, that you have uh, had a chance to look at the questions that I set you on this as well, the comprehension questions to, to make sure that you really understand what these scenes are all about. Um, and again, it's also really useful to watch these scenes on Digital Theatre Plus as a way of consolidating. Um, it's a, probably worthwhile watching it before you listen to this and then also watching it afterwards. Um, it will really, really help your learning. Um, so act one, scene four, um, it's the first scene that we're in Rome. And in this scene, um, it's split into kind of two parts, which we're going to talk about. The first bit is uh, where Caesar condemns Antony's indulgent and debauched life in Alexandria, so in Egypt. Um, and what we see is his views on Antony and then actually Lepidus, um, the other member of the triumvirate, is much kinder his judgments of Antony's character and ultimately we see Caesar's frustration and anger um, towards Antony's uh, apparent neglecting of his duties um, to Rome in order to spend time with Cleopatra and, and his hedonistic um, identity. So um, let's have a look through the beginning bit. Um, we see Caesar begins with reading a letter and he says, you may see Lepidus and henceforth know it is not Caesar's natural vice to hit our great competitor. Uh, from Alexandria, this is the news. And actually this bit almost takes on a slight choral function in many ways um, because the letter helps to describe what um, Anthony has been up to and we get that through that triple he fishes, drinks and wastes the lamps of night in revel um, so we kind of get the, the idea that Anthony is um, slovenly somewhat, that he's indulging in pleasure and in excess and not um, Roman duties um, and working as such and we get that kind of imagery that he's up he's up all night and um, which means that he's not able to do his work during the day um now caesar's opening line um it is not caesar's natural vice to hit our great competitor um there is a suggestion in that sentence that there is some type of internal faction um and there is a the triumvirate which should be a united front in the roman empire it's actually quite separate or there's there's definitely kind of tensions that exist between the three um and Caesar's ultimately frustrated um and thinks that it's Antony's fault that he has created this tension because it's not Caesar's natural vice in other words it's not like me to feel this frustrated usually or to be angry it's Antony's fault he's made me this way um and we get kind of rivalry and tensions between the two um uh Antony should hold allegiance and support with Rome and Caesar feels frustrated that that's just not happened as such um we get the next impression again that actually um antony's conflicted nature is brought up even by caesar he says that antony is not more manlike than cleopatra nor the queen of ptolemy more womanly than he um and the image there that inversion of the phrase um again stresses and we've seen this previously in act one that she kind of demasculates him um he's essentially saying that you know he's he's more you know she's more manlike than him and and she's you know more uh, womanly than he is so there's there's that kind of um conflicted nature that comes in again and and that um cleopatra somewhat diminished antony is being stressed by caesar's um language there um 
there's the impression that hardly give audience or vouchsafed to think he had partners. So that hardly give audience means that he's he's spending time in private, that he refuses to do his public duties or listen to, um, you know, messages. And, and we've seen that. So we know that actually Caesar's a kind of Anthony at this point. It's right. It's exactly what we've seen as an audience. Um, and, and we have to take that into consideration when we're thinking about how we how we feel about Caesar as a character. Um, he then describes, he says to uh, Lepidus, you shall find there a man who is the abstract of all faults that all men follow. Um, and that image, he stresses that Antony is essentially the epitome of a flawed man at that point. And there's there's an element of maybe hyperbole with that. Um, Lepidus, in the next bit, kind of maybe doesn't fully really agree. He says, I must not think there are evils enough to darken all his goodness. Um, a much more balanced view from Lepidus is offered. He's, he describes him through that simile in the next line. His faults in him seem as the spots of heaven, more fiery by night's blackness. So he alludes to the night sky at that point. And he's saying, well, yes, although Antony's faults may be the black sky, but actually the stars um, are shine greater. Um, and actually he describes it as hereditary rather than purchased. In other words, they are what makes Antony so good um, that he's not as flawed as maybe others are depicting, um, but that there is something almost divine about Antony's flaws by being described as spots of heaven. <clears throat> Apologies, folks. My voice is starting to go. So, if I'm coughing, that that's kind of the, probably the um, the issue. Um, if we have a look back up <clears throat> in the next bit, Caesar doesn't really seem to uh, acknowledge Lepidus's view. He says, "You are too indulgent." Um, he says, "It is not amiss to tumble on the bed of Ptolemy to give a kingdom for a mouth." Um, that kind of play on words again seems very derogatory towards Cleopatra to tumble on the bed of Ptolemy um, to give a kingdom for a mouth. In other words, he wouldn't be the first man to give up everything for a tumble on the bed. Um, and that kind of seems derogatory at that point. And the illusion reminds a Shakespearean audience that the reference to Ptolemy um, would remind a Shakespearean audience of the incestuous marriage between Cleopatra and her younger brother that was arranged by Julius Caesar. And she also had the affair with Julius Caesar and a child with as well. So that illusion wouldn't be missed in, in many ways by, by that Jacobean audience. Um, if we look at the next bit, he then kind of, again, that derogatory or embittered tone is stressed through the alliteration to sit and keep the turn of tippling with slaves, to stand the buffet with knaves and sm the smell of sweat. Um, there's a real indication that, you know, Antony has given up the Roman Empire, essentially, for um, a tumble on a bed, to hang around in the marketplace with slaves um, and to walk about the streets at noon instead of being in court um, doing his public duty as a Roman. Um, so it's real quite anger and frustration from Caesar at that point. He then says in, in line 21, say this becomes him. In other words, he's saying to Lepidus, you're saying this makes him good, um, as his composure must be rare indeed, who those things cannot blenish, yet must Antony no way excuse his foils when we do beat so great weight in his likeness. Now that image, he says, you can't excuse Antony's foils, that his foils seems quite dismissive as well, and um, when we do bear so great weight in his likeness. In other words, Caesar's saying, Antony's behaviour it affects us because what's happened is our lives have become much more different because we've now 
essentially are facing attack um, and invasion. So he's kind of saying like his behavior would be absolutely fine if it was just affecting Anthony, but it's not. So he needs to kind of do his job. Um, and there's a much more kind of condemnation then from Caesar is not necessarily on moral grounds. He's not saying that Anthony's being immoral. He's actually saying he's being recklessly um, dismissive of his political role. Um, so it's a condemnation of Anthony as a politician or as a leader rather than kind of as a uh, on a moral ground. And that's something to consider. Um, he describes that in the next bit. He says, if he filled his vacancy with his voluptuousness, full surfeits and the dryness of his bones call on him for it. So there's that kind of dismissiveness of like, if he wanted to be doing that in his own time, um, his vacancy, then actually all that would affect would be the dryness of his bones. Essentially, it's a symptom of a venereal disease is what he's kind of saying at that point. And he's almost saying like that would be it's another insult towards Cleopatra, probably. Um, but he's saying, you know, if 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 Anthony wanted to do that, that might just be the only consequence that he might get a, an STD as such. But he says, but and there is that online um what is it 25 28 that but suggested a shift in tone he says to confine such time that drums him from his sport and speaks as loud as his own state and ours just to be chide so in other words like however him doing that um and, and behaving in such a way in Egypt affects us and not just him um and he says because he's done that that he deserves to be chide as we rate boys who being mature in knowledge upon their experience to the present pleasure. And that simile that he uses is essentially he deserves to be scolded as a child because he knows he's behaving foolishly. So he deserves to be told off. And um, so it's, a, it's quite a, it's quite a an interesting simile to give, considering that we know that Caesar is actually quite a bit younger than Antony. Antony is the older experienced um, Roman officer in many ways and Caesar has been described by Cleopatra in, in Act 1 scene 1 as scarce bearded so again there might be a tension eventually between these two when they meet um, and part of that might actually be the, the the, the kind of age difference too between these two characters so it's just something to think about youth and experience um, and, and how those two things are maybe a tension in the play too um, now the messenger comes in. Now, as we've known before, messengers usually bring bad news. Um, it's been a, it's a repeated device and a, a repeated theatrical device, particularly in in tragedy. And the messenger coming in propels the action forward um, with news of an imminent danger, which requires urgent military action. Um, the messenger says, "Most noble Caesar, shall thou have report to how it is abroad?" Um, so, in other words, this is what's happening in the outside world while this internal faction um, is. is discussed Pompey is strong at sea and it appears he is beloved to those that have only feared Caesar um it's quite an interesting line we get the image that there is a growing threat at sea and there is the risk of war the Roman Empire is a threat at this point but actually this messenger's report does allow us access to potentially think about what good leadership actually is and looking at the allegiance of people because he says it appears he is beloved to those that have only feared Caesar and actually that might suggest that what is Caesar like as a as a leader um, of the Roman world is he feared by the people 
does that necessarily mean respected or loved? Um, or do you get, you know, do you get more with honey than you do with vinegar? It's it's a it's a kind of debate that's going to come up over and over again. So it's worthwhile just putting a little star at that point. Um, we get the image then to the ports, the discontents repair and men reports give him much wronged. So there is that growing threat, and actually he has the populace behind him, and that's important. Caesar needs to crush that if he if he wants to kind of sustain his role um across Rome. The messenger leaves. Um, Caesar's like, I should have known no less. Um, he then talks about the the populace, the kind of the the normal everyday man, in actually quite a derogatory way. He says um, that the idea of this common body, like to a vagabond flag upon the stream, goes to and back, lacking the varying tide to rot itself with motion. Um, so that that simile is suggesting essentially that the the normal everyday man, the people the common body is like um, a flag on a stream that actually it's the stream that governs where it goes. The flag just moves back and forth. Um, it's shifting allegiance can be there. And actually it suggests that they're fickle, that they'll give support to Pompey um, and that they kind of lack any type of reason in a sense. Um, so it does suggest that Caesar is somewhat maybe astute um, as a leader and he knows now he has to kind of essentially stop that from happening or get the allegiance to go back to him rather than to Pompey. Now again another messenger comes in with more bad news. Um, Caesar I bring thee word Menocrates a menace famous pirates makes the sea serve them um, and actually what we get at that point is that the sea is personified at that point and the sea equates to power um, and this is actually where battle for the control of the Roman world occurs in the play and it will um, in, in multiple occasions that wars and battles are fought at sea um, because if you capture the winning uh, the, uh, if you capture the army at sea then you're able to invade land um, so that's essentially at the, the the kind of heart of where battles um, and the fight for power occur. Um, the next little bit comes in that they are starting to make hot inroads they make in Italy. So in other words, they're, they're approaching quick and fast. Um, so the need for a united front is actually imperative at this point. It helps to pick up pace and tension big time. Um, we get Pompey's name strikes more than could his war resisted, and um, that name and rumours cause more damage than than any attack at that point. The triumvirate's at risk. Um, there is a threat to the Roman Empire, and actually they will get more as a united front, as the triple, the, the um, as a triple kind of force, Lepidus, um, Caesar, and Antony, rather than being a divided force. So the next... Um, time we will probably want to see Caesar is is the the kind of unification of, of the of the triumvirate at that point, and Caesar does call on to that. In the next bit, when the messenger leaves, he says, "Antony, leave thy lascivious with seals," um, and there's that kind of plea and that imperative in his voice. He's not obviously not talking to Antony at this point, but it's almost prayer like you could say. Um, and in the next bit, he actually pays tribute to Antony in quite a moving and authoritative way especially when we remember that it comes from a, a rival. So Caesar and Antony, there's no real love loss between the two of them. Um, but even Caesar, who's just condemned Antony as a, as a leader, um, has condemned him for neglecting his Roman duty, is able to admire Antony for um, his, his past kind of deals. Um, so he says, when thou once was beaten from Modena, thou slewest Herodus and Pansa. Um, he describes how essentially that, you know, after he won this massive battle, 
um, that famine followed and there was rumours that Antony did drink uh, the steel of horses and the gilded puddle which beasts would cough at. In other words, Antony's kind of, um, you know, foraged in the forest and drank, you know, rank water as a way to survive. And what we get is this um, evoking image of Antony's past heroism um, and the courage that he faced in not only winning battle, but a battle to survive as well. Um, and this kind of image that we get is a picture of a perfect soldier. And that really directly contrasts with what we've seen of Antony before. We've we've kind of seen earlier pictures of drunken dissolution from Antony, who's more interested in the sport he's going to have with Cleopatra than, you know, fixing the Roman Empire from, from threats at sea. So that that's something to really have a look at. He they they describe the image of sorry, not they, he. Um, on the Alps it is reported thou didst eat strange flesh, which some did die to look on. It wounds thine honor. Um, so there is this kind of image that Antony, you know, has kind of hurt his own identity. He's like, it wounds thine honor. So the personification of honor um is, is stressed at that point. Um and Caesar's speech in many ways helps to raise Antony's estimation in the audience's eye. We're given Antony um an image of Antony's identity pretty much from a Roman view. Um, and this is confirmed and extended that Antony is neglecting his previously heralded identity as almost being kind of Roman godlike. Um, and and this kind of current push to pleasure and to Egypt is um kind of a fall from grace from Antony. That that's what's kind of depicted at that point. Um, and actually what's really befitting about Caesar's description of Antony as a soldier is Antony kind of from this description is like the best soldier that anyone could possibly be um and we have to remember one of the opening images that was given of Antony is that the dotage the the love that he has for Cleopatra doth overflow the measure and actually that line of Antony overflowing the measure Antony being an excessive character is true in both sides of his identity. He seems to be, you know, not only just a good fighter, but like the best fighter and the best type of person who's going to survive and thrive in really harsh and brutal conditions, the same way that he loves to the extremes as well. So Antony in many ways does overflow the measure in both of his identities. Um, and that's something to, to consider as well. There is a greatness that comes with Antony um, and an excessiveness that comes with him. Um, Lepidus is lying, you know, tis pity of him. He does kind of say, yeah, it's a shame. He's 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 dropped. Um, he needs to be able to pick it up. Caesar then kind of that imperative, you know, let his shames quickly drive him to Rome. Um, and actually, Antony is going to Rome. There, there's an element of, of dramatic irony there that we know Antony's on his way. Um, Caesar doesn't yet. Um, so we have to remember that that does affect how we, we view Antony as a character as well. Um, he talks about, you know, it is time we twain did show ourselves in the field. In other words, it's time that the three of us show ourselves together in the field, that we all need to show a united front. Pompey thrives in our idleness. And again, that collective pronoun of our suggests that this is a collective responsibility that the three of them need to face against Pompey. And time is a repeated um, kind of reference on, of the play to show the the, uh, the importance of immediate action, in a sense. Um, and if we have a look down, um, just at the very end of the scene, they're, they're kind of saying farewell, you know, well, let's wait, we'll see what's going to happen. We're waiting, essentially, for the, the meeting of the triumvirate. And actually, for Anthony, we get uh, a man in the scene, although he doesn't appear, um, that we almost 
see a kind of great man, almost mythological acts in the face of hardship. He's already been described as kind of like plated Mars at this point. So that repeated the kind of mythological or godlike status is going to be another repeated feature um, of Anthony throughout the play. So it's worthwhile putting that note. Um, so what I would recommend you do is go and watch this scene on Digital Theatre Plus. Um, if you have any questions on this scene or anything else that you would like to add down, um, please just ping it onto one of the posts on uh, Microsoft Teams. Um, join me in a little minute or so to go through Act 1, Scene 5. 